Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to the Chabura. Today we have part two of our exciting series where our Talmidim take over. Uh, last week I had the privilege of sharing, and this week we have our dear Ben Ralstein, who will be presenting on a correspondence between Rav Kook and Rav Yechia Kafech on the authenticity of Kabbalah, a nice spicy topic. About our speaker, Ben Rothstein was born in East Barnett and attended Yeshiva Takoto. He studied ancient languages at UCL, University of College of London, and is spending a year working in the Jewish community before resuming his studies for a master's in Hebrew and Semitic studies. He currently lives in Mill Hill with his wife, Shoshana. I personally am uh, very fortunate to be able to call Ben a friend, and I'm grateful for our banter-filled relationship. Uh, ben is really a knowledgeable fellow, as uh, you'll soon see. Uh, he's also an active member of the Chabura, and we thank him for all of the work that he does with us. And um, on that point, I do want to share how, in my view, uh, this is really really what makes the Chabura so special. Uh, we just launched our new curriculum, um, and when people talk about reasons to join, to become members, they really emphasize our unbelievable content, our journals, the books, and so forth. Um, but on top of this, we have this beautiful network of really incredible people uh, from the around the world who are all united by a commitment to Torah, truth, and Hashem. So the fact that I feel so close with some random curly-haired British guy is really amazing to me and really what makes the Chabra so special. Uh, so with that said, thank you all for being here. Ben, thank you so much for sharing with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Ahad. Okay, so let's share the screen. All right, what we're going to talk about is the what Sina called when he did the um, title of it. He called it the Kabbalistic Divide. Sina likes his titles. So this is the Kabbalistic Divide. Letters exchanged between Rav Cook and Mori Kafeh. So uh, I'm going to go through a bit of background about the individuals, about the letters, and then go through some of the arguments that they um, that they make with each other. Um, a few things to point out. Firstly, I am neither a Makubal nor a Makubal. I have no like proper, you know grounding in 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 the certain esoteric traditions of judaism um i'm going to explain them as best i can um but if you want to suggest anything else or chime in with anything please do um also these are going these uh translated letters are going to be released in a book by the habura in um probably the end of this year start of next year along with letters between uh Eliab ben Amozeg and shadal also on the topic of the authenticity of Kabbalah. So um, if you are interested in this topic, that might be a worthwhile investment. Um, but yeah, so the Kabbalistic divide, let's begin. So, yeah, there we go. Okay. So general introduction to Kabbalah. As I said, I'm not uh, an expert in this, but there's a few things to be um, aware of as we start. The first thing is if you want a really good introduction to Kabbalah, read Major Trends. It's, you know, it's definitive in this realm. Say what you want about Gershom Shalom, and I'm sure people will. Um, but, you know, this is absolutely one of the um, strongest kind of, uh, you know, the clearest presentations of the development of Kabbalah. Even if I sat through, you know, the first chapter where he's kind of uh, ripping on Maimonides and, uh, you know, and I sat through that quite, I mean, you know, uncomfortably, it's still very, you know, if you want to get a good introduction, that's that's something to read. Um, but as far as introductions that I'll give you uh, are concerned, so the first thing is that the Zohar is not the same as Lurianic Kabbalah. The Zohar is, um, you know, a work which is pseudepigraphically assigned to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, um, published by Moshe Delion. We'll get into the question of authorship. Well, you know, it's a little bit addressed in the letters we'll touch on, maybe towards the end. Um, but the Zohar's, 
you know, theology or theogony is not the same as Lurianic Kabbalah. And people often conflate, uh, conflate the two. So Lurianic Kabbalah is the Kabbalah of the Ari, uh, Ashkenazi Rabbi Yitzchak Luria. And there are quite a few differences between them. So I just want to make them clear. Okay. Um, and then maybe we'll talk about the difference between them and what might be my more, a more Maimonidian perspective because of our uh, letters that we'll come to in a minute. But the Zohar has the Sephirotic doctrine without mentioning Sephirot. So you don't really come across the term Sephirot in the Zohar, but you do have, I uh, put the little tree on the right for you, this um, development of the Sephirot, um, which comes up prominently in the Zohar. But it's important to know that in the Zohar, the Sephirot are within God. So this is not God emanating down into the world. This is all within God. So everything is God. But how does there exist something that is not God's? Well, it exists because within God, this whole thing of, of the sephirot is taking place. This whole theogony is one word. There's you know a few ways of describing it is taking place. And God is kind of in union with himself. We'll come and talk maybe some more about that towards the end as well. But um, God is in union with himself. And everything that's created is really just at the end point of, of God, which is... You know, some people would say that that seems somewhat pantheistic, say, because, you know, everything is within God as you know, if you if you visualize it as a circle, then kind of the sephirot are circular within that circle. OK, that that's all taking place within God. Um, however, in Lurianic Kabbalah, the sephirot are how God emanates to not God. Right. And this is the doctrine of Simpson, which is much more monotheist friendly ish. I probably should have put a, you know, ish at the end of that. Monotheist friendly in the sense that the Ari, you know, we're talking about the sephirot and we're talking about the doctrine of simsum where god kind of contracts into himself and leaves this empty space of not god allows for something that's not god to exist which whereas the zohar purely zohar kind of theology doesn't allow for that everything is god whereas here there is space for not gods and you know there are people who have discussed you know what, what simsum exactly is whether it is whether they say literal or not but fine um they are, you know, this is this is not God, but instead, basically, we talk about in, in Luriana, I don't think I put it on there. Yeah, we'll come back to it in a second. Yeah, but Luriana Kabbalah believes in divine sparks due to Shabira HaKelim, which is the breaking of the vessels. So what this is very briefly, oh, there's something in the chat. Uh, no, I don't know if there's something that came up with the chat. Okay, fine. Sorry, I thought someone had posted something. Um, Luriana Kabbalah believes in divine sparks due to Shabira HaKelim, the breaking of the vessels, which means as follows. There was this, there is the Ein Sof, which is the the something that we can't speak about God. Okay, so the Kabbalists accept that there is this that God fundamentally is unknowable. In fact, they just call it this thing Ainsof with no end. God also has no beginning, but human beings can't even fathom what it means to have no beginning. But we can kind of get an idea of what it would mean to have no end. So they call God Ainsof because that's something that is not gonna, you know is not us using a metaphor to understand, which it would be if you said God had no beginning. So this is just the purest description that they use. But then essentially, when God contracted into himself, according to this doctrine of Shadrach HaKelim, um, kind of ray of light shot forwards and went into the area of Simsum. And, you know, all these Sephiroth kind of exist at that point. Um, and they correspond to what's called Adam Kadmon, like the primordial or the supernal man, and that's and that's you know if you look at this it's like the in that you can quite easily superimpose the image of a human being over this diagram, and so 
Um, they kind of they flow pretty well through the the kind of the, the lower three sephiroth, but the the sorry the upper three sephiroth, but through the lower ones, the essentially the light cannot be contained and they break. Okay, and so bits of divine spark fly into everything that's in Simsum. So Simsum is not God, but then all of the divine light that you know exploded out of these kalim, these vessels, um, finds a place within part of um within parts of the not gods and so this is what's known as panentheism in that everything has a, a, a as as they like to say in certain eh, when they teach children in certain parts of england i'm sure in america and israel as well everyone has a little bit of hashem in them so that's panentheism that's from lurianic kabbalah okay um i need to yeah so let's pause there for a second and just explain a little bit more because um let's talk about the ideas of Kabbalah being anthropocentric, as opposed to what, you know, we'll talk about Maimonides mysticism a little bit, that's theocentric. So uh, over here, I have my glass of water, which I made a bracha on earlier. Here's one I prepared earlier. And when I made the bracha, the question is, what happened? So if you ask Harambam, you'll read Hilchot Deot, you'll see that what happened was, I took a moment out of my day to focus on the fact that God created everything, God is the sovereign of everything, and to appreciate the fact that I'm about to drink this water, which is going to facilitate my relationship with God. That's a beautiful thing. It raises my, um, you know, my intellect. It refines my uh, existence, my midot. But it still places God front and center of everything. And God is not being affected by anything I do. You ask Lurianic Kabbalah, if you, you know, if you go within this panentheistic view, then what happens? Well, one of the sparks that broke from the supernal light through the Shavirah HaKelim ended up in this water. When I recited the Baracha, and I say recited specifically, I returned that spark to the divine. Consequently, it doesn't matter about my mental state, my focus. You know, I can rattle off a Baracha and that's fine because what I did was recite the magic words, hey, witch doctor, and send the supernal spark back up to God, okay? So that's a much more, people would call it theurgic or other kinds of things. Again, I'm going to try and steer away from, from me telling like what I think about these things, but people would call it, you know, term that theurgic or manipulative or anything like that. Um, you know, the kind of segula-oriented ideas, okay? Um, so... That's the kind of a big difference between what we'll say Maimonides, you know, conception of of Jewish practice versus, you know, the Kabbalistic one. So these are some things to bear in mind when we're going to look at these Kabbalistic ideas. I'm going to do a quick introduction out to some of the personalities. So Rav Kook. Rav Kook was born in 1865 in Eastern Europe. At the time, I think it was in Lithuania. At the time, it was part of the Russian Empire. He was recognized as an Eloi in Volozhin, the famous, you know, known as the mother of yeshivot, or mother of yeshivas, to be honest. He became close with the Nitziv, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, and um, he also went to study Kabbalah with the Leshem, wrote a sefer. He's known as the Leshem. The sefer was called Leshem Shabova Achloma, which is um, the, the different um, jewels in the breastplate, breastplate of the Kohen, the Kohen Gadol. Uh, so he really is, is prominent on both fronts in terms of his, you know, quality as a halachist, as a Talmudist, so to speak, and also uh, on the Kabbalistic front. Um, so... Um, he became the Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Jaffa and then Jerusalem, the Mandate Palestine. So he's a pretty significant player in the Zionist you know, um, development as well. However, because of his Zionism, anti-Zionist detractors frequently misquoted him. They often completely forged letters from him trying to show how Zionism is straying from the path of the Holy Torah 
And uh, they did it with quite significant success. You know, the fact, meaning despite the fact that he had support from the, the, the whole gamut, really, of, of Jewish um Jewish, uh, you know, people at the time, Rav Chaim Ozer, Rav Boruch Bear, the Rebbe Rayatz, the Lubavitch Rebbe at the time, Dinah Bramsky in London, Rav Hutner, right, among other people, these were his supporters. And his opponents came up with such, uh, you know, eloquent attacks as his name is Avraham Yitzchok Cook, which backwards spells key, which means vomit. So clearly you can see, you know, not, not a person to be trusted. Um, so... He had a bit of a difficult time with that, and it, and it caused a lot of problems that, you know, not going into that now. Um, but key for us, however, shall be this quote from Sholem. He describes Rob Cook, and he writes as follows, Rabbi Cook's great work entitled Orot HaKodesh is a veritable theologia mystica of Judaism, equally distinguished by its originality and the richness of its author's mind. It is the last example of productive Kabbalistic thought of which I know. So he really, Sholem is a, is a, is a big fan of the kind of, Kabbalistic ideas that are advanced by Rav Cook. Important person to know. So let's take a look at Mori Kafer. He was born in 1850 in Sanara. He was briefly the chief rabbi of Yemen, but he did, even though he wasn't that for so long, he sat on the Beit Din there for decades. He established the Dor De'ar movement, and they are known as, as Dar Da'im, which is an Arabic style plural. So Arabic pluralizes without, um, anyway, it has this things called broken plural. So you get Dar Da'im for the plural of Dor De'ar. Okay, so what did this do? It moved away from the superstitious, brackets, Lurianic practices in favor of rational approaches of Harambam and Rabbeinu Saadia. It also involved restoring halakha to be in accordance with Mishneh Torah. Okay, and he instituted the study of secular subjects in the yeshiva alongside usual Torah studies. So a few things to pay attention to here is the fact that in Yemen, and there, there's an article, uh, who wrote an article on this? It might have been Fa'ur, I'm not sure if it was someone else or Fa'ur, about how, you know, the, the, the Yemenites had essentially had um, the Shulhan Aruch kind of foisted on them by kind of European people say, and, and people living in the land of Israel saying, look, this is this, this new updated version of Halakha. You know, we've even got it in today. You know, I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was Avraham Yosef, I think who said, you know, the Yemenites don't keep the nine days. They need to kind of get with the program or, or get out, basically. And he said that on, on public national radio. And so I think Harav uh, Rasona Rossi was like, what on earth are you talking about? Like, like this is just nuts. He said, can you, you know, and, and so he went on radio, Rav Yosef, and then said, I will not apply, uh, apologize uh, and I will not explain myself to Hasrei Hadat, who think that they can eat meat during the nine days. Anyway, yeah. Thinly veiled prejudice. Um, anyway, uh, Mori Kafe was also well known for pursuing manuscripts, especially of Harambam. There's lots of manuscripts we have now that are thanks to him. So there's some uh, copies of Mishnah as well, I think, that he got hold of. So a significant player. Okay. Um, let's talk about, oh, yes, I just brought this from Eben Sapir, which actually is, um, is uh, there's someone called Yaakov Sapir, Harav Yaakov Sapir, who traveled around the world, uh, around the world, you know, like as far as Australia, collecting money and also um, meeting people. And he kept a diary of it. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, so this is quite a funny note. Um, I actually also realized that I don't have a watch here, which is very dangerous. Um, okay, it's 10 to 9. Um, so he writes this book called Evan Sapir, where he records his journeys and... Um, Mori, yes, so Mori Kafek actually quotes it. He actually talks about it in um in his letter. We're not going to talk about it, see exactly why he brings it now, but in terms of his movement of the Dar Daim 
to remove the kind of superstitious practices. So, so here you, you'll see an example, okay? So he's recording how they used to kind of sing the song Barrio High. And he says, Because they never had like, um, uh, rather, they never had, uh, in, in, in days gone by, the Jews in Yemen didn't have access to the kind of precious books. They think anything written down or printed is is holy, truthful, established. There's no there's no reason to cast aspersions over it. It's like halacha given to Moses at Sinai. Even if it's heretical, God forbid, if it's printed, they just assume it, take it as gospel. I saw here the books of Nehemiah Hayun. We'll talk about him a bit later. He was a Sabbatean. But even after Shabtai Tzvi was outed, he was a Sabbatean. We already burnt these books. We destroyed these heretical works. But they call them holy and blessed. They think because of their great, you know, they spend most of their time studying Zohar and Kabbalah. They think that Bar Yochai wrote the song Bar Yochai, which is just a phenomenal, like, could you imagine? That, that would just be brilliant. But um, they think he wrote the song Bar Yochai, all 13 verses, however many there are. Or at least one of his students, some of his students did. Therefore, they declare this song holy and they sing it as Shabbat begins. They, they make derashot heaps and heaps of, of hints, which is right, the, this is all borrowed rabbinic terminology, or whatever, they, you know, heaps and heaps of hints and, and secret wisdoms, right, that they make from the song Bar Yochai. Okay, he stands that they get an elder who's seasoned in the past of Kabbalah, and he stands, he's wrapped up, he, he, and he, and he sings a song, and they all reply with the words, and then they all sing it verse by verse, and they sing the chorus, blah, 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 whatever. And then um, they pray Arvit when uh, at and then they all go home. And then they do the rest normally. But uh, it's important to notice this was the, the scene. You know, Yemen had kind of went when, when Maurice Kafech came and said, you know, we need to go back to how it used to be before we kind of got in, you know, taught about all these Lurianic or, or mystical ideas. This was the world that he was saying that to, and it created quite a big split. It wasn't, it wasn't so well received all the time. Okay, so that's, now we're going to move on to the letters. Let's talk a bit about the letters um, basic, in, in basic terms. So the first letter, yeah, the first letter was dated the 26th of Tevet, 5691, 15 January 1931, and which that's the letter that Rav Cook sends to Mori Kafech. Mori Kafech replies 28th of August 1931, which is about three months before he dies. He dies in Kislev. So uh, this is ER. No, once they kind of died at Kislev. That doesn't make sense. One second, hang on. I'm not, yeah, no, but he died. I think he dies a couple of months after this in 1931. He dies at the, towards the end of 1931, he dies. So this is one of the last things that he wrote. Um, he had correspondence, by the way, before with Rav Cook, because Rav Cook, when he heard about the community in Yemen, he sent them questions like, do you really marry more than one wife? And do you really do all these things that, you know, write a get in uh, in Arabic or I don't remember things like that. 
And they reply back saying, yes, we do. It's like, wow. So, um, they, you know, they've had they've had correspondences before. And this is one thing to be aware of. The second thing to note about the letters that's really interesting is the Mori Kafek attaches multiple signatures, right? His, his name kind of appears, I've cropped out of the picture. He signs it. And this is Allah Hatum on the uh, signatories as well. Yahya ben Salam Alabit, Salam ben Yahya Karach, Korach, Yahya ben Yosef Giat, Ratsha ben Salam Sarum. I don't fully know. If I pronounced those all correctly, I probably didn't. So I apologize. But, uh, you know, you've got, so it's not like Mori Kafech is standing alone and he's made these things up. Like he has significant backing from the people uh, around. So he's got multiple signatories on this, on this um, document. Um, finally, the letters are also written in traditional eloquent style, weaving together numerous biblical and rabbinic quotations, most frequently in praise of each other. And it's beautiful to see that you can disagree with people and not um, kind of, attack their character at the same time so i've underlined here every time there's and this is just the opening paragraph of of maury kafek's response to rob cook describing rob cook and every different every color is a different quote so you've got you know starting which is a quote from the gemara that's a quote from mishle i think um is a yumi i can't remember now um but by the way that which was used by the way in a the, the blue underlined shit that was used in a teshubah of um of rubash uh, to introduce as well. Very nice. Which is a quote from the Talmud as well, which, by the way, actually preserves an earlier, more accurate textual variant with this um, this quote. But also, it's actually, you need to kind of be aware when you're reading these, there's a lot of subtext going on. So one example is this last line here. So he's like singing the praises of Rav Kook here. But Subhama Rabbanana, you know, a, a, a rabbinical student, a Rahamin Le Bene Maate, where the people of his of his um town are fond of him. Rahamin Le, they they like him, they love him. Okay. So the context of this uh piece of Talmud though is that um I don't remember who it is now, which I'm I've forgotten. But some, you know, there's an accusation that the people who like, you know, the people of the city, you know, like this particular MRA because he's lenient and doesn't chastise them when they do the wrong thing. So there could well be like a subtext here where Marie Kafech is saying, you're, you know, you're going with all this Kabbalistic stuff. I don't know if you're doing that for the good of the masses or because you believe it, but you, you know, if, if you're doing it because people, you know, if you're not chastising them, then maybe that's something you should be doing. So, you know, there's a lot of subtext that goes on that you need to, you know, be aware of reading into as well. Like, also, it could just be nothing, but I, you know, I, I would, you know, think that their minds are working on quite a um, high level of, of thought. And so these kind of ideas are probably, you know, or the connotations of what they're quoting should probably be in their minds. Uh, anyway, so let's move on to addressing some of these uh, letters themselves. So 25 minutes of introduction. Um, the rest of this will just fly by. Um, so let's take a look at some of the. Uh, question so was the zohar written by rabbi shimon ben bar yochai so this is a a contentious question which i'm not going to address myself i'm going to see what they have to say about it um thank you for, for the chat yeah um so this is um the, uh, an argument advanced by mori Kafech. this is the gemara in sanhedrin this is from uh when when it's uh talmud especially i, I try and get um manuscripts or Geniza fragments that are, you can use on the Freeburg Geniza project. They're very nice. I very much like Geniza stuff. So, um, Tony Rabbanan, this is a Sanhedrin. Once these prophets died, Nistalaka Shechina, other texts read Nistalaka Ruach HaKodesh, Mi Israel. So the divine presence departed 
parted from Israel after their death, right? Because they were the end of the prophets. There's a in Seder Olam, I think it also says um, about Alexander, the great Alexander of Macedonia, in his days, Nebuah was uh, ceased, okay? But despite this, they would still make use of the Batkol, of a heavenly voice. Of what, no, sorry, but... Um, I fell into the trap of translating it commonly. Whatever a call is, they would use it. It's clearly linked to some kind of Nebu'ah or Shekhinah. It's something, not clear what, but they still used it. It's a lower level of prophecy. Okay. And we know, in fact, that a call did actually speak to Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai when? When he came out the cave. That was, um, you could have jumped in there with so I could drink water, but it could also have been a rhetorical question. But uh, when he came out the cave, so, you know, Barkol says, uh, did I bring you out to destroy my world? Get back in the cave. And then, you know, okay. So with this in mind, there's no Nebu'ah anymore. Let's look at a story that's brought in the Talmud in Marila with um, some very interesting, a very interesting story. So Amaru. So sorry, the context of this story is that the, the non-Jewish government has placed some decrees upon the Jewish people, severely limiting their religious life. Okay. Some of those, they are not allowed to keep the laws of Nida. They're not allowed to do various different things. Okay. So one of the uh, certain rabbi goes undercover. He gets his hair cut like a beluriot, right? Like in the, the non-Jewish hairstyle. And he goes undercover and he suggests, well, hang on a second. You know, it's basically, it's to your advantage that the Jews keep doing their religion for various reasons. Okay. Um, and they, you know, it, whatever, they, they're convinced by it. But then at the last minute, he's foiled. He's discovered that he's really Jewish. And they reinstate all the decrees. So the rabbis are stuck. So Ameru. So the rabbi said, Who will go and nullify this decree for us? Someone has to go to the emperor and deal with it. Should Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai go? He is regularly uh, receives miracles. How about after him should go Rabbi Alazab Rabbi Yosei should follow after him. Sorry, So this is a lot of background because the story it comes into play in the story. So it says really like you're gonna um if my father was alive, would you say go and give your son to the slaughter? I'm not going to Rishim on Ben Yochai. That's a terrible idea. He is known for setting people on fire, right? Uh so but also, you know, I don't want to go into the Roman generals because um, the Roman, uh, you know, if, if the, 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 you know, there's no guarantee of getting back alive. So, if my father, your high was still alive, would you be able to tell him, you know, send, give your son over to the slaughter just to go to the Roman, you know, the government and, and, and argue? And there's no guarantee of coming back alive. So, I'm afraid Rabbi Yosei says, I will go and not my son, Rabbi El because I'm afraid that he will do something, say something out of line, basically, Rabbi Shimon will. will punish him so so Rabbi Shimon then said okay but I won't I won't punish him you know I won't do anything say anything wrong but still he did so what's that story so now we're getting to the story because the story is to explain why Rabbi Shimon um so kind of punished or, or did, you know Rabbi El Aza so when they were walking along the way they were asked a question how do I know that the blood of a sheretz of a sheretz of a of um rodents, whatever you want to call it, sheretz, discussion, fine, that it's Tameh. So Rabbi El-Azab Rabbi Yosei, he kind of twisted his mouth, he mouths kind of the words, 
Amaran says, This is the thing that is Tamei for you. It's a Darashana Pasuk. From the mouthing, kind of you trying to, you know, mouthing the answer. You are clearly a, a, you know, a student of Talmud Chachamim. Um, but still, because I am the master and you should not have issued the hal- answered the halakhic question in my presence, you will not make it back alive, you will die. So, so Ben Temalion, we'll discuss who that is in a second as a tangent, because it's interesting, um, comes out to greet them. And he says, Do you want me to come with you? The maidservant of my ancestor, that's Hagar, you know, chanced upon an angel, rather an angel was sent to her three separate occasions. And I haven't even had it once. So Mikon But you know what? If this person, if Ben Temalion is going to help me, I'll accept the help from any location. So what do we see from here? This is Ahmed Aleph crossover to So what do we see here? Rabbi Shimon in the Gemara, in the in the in the Talmud, which is a book, you know, authenticated by the Supreme Courts of the Jewish people. It's validated by all the all the the, uh, the Kalot, however you want to describe the authority of the Talmud. It's clearly saying that Rabbi Shimon never had revelation. Okay, he did not have Nebuah. Nebuah didn't exist. He had a bat kol. That's all. And here he didn't even have a bat kol and cries out that he never received Nebuah. He never received a malach even. So now let's um, let's look at what the Zohar has to say right at the beginning about this idea, about uh, the you know the, the the stuff that takes place in the Zohar. Elohim Adam. So the pasuk says. Elohim said, make, uh, let's make Adam. Okay. So the Pasuk and Elohim says, Sod Hashem li So God informs, this is the, the Zohar is connecting this idea that God informs the secrets to those who fear him. Okay. Okay. So the Sabad Sabin um, opened up, began, Amar and said, Sabad Sabin means that the, the kind of elder of the elders. So if you remember the, um, can we go all the way back up to here actually? Yeah. So let's go back to here. We've got the Sefira diagram. The Sabin are the elder Sefirot, so Binah and Chokhmah, okay? The, the kind of the lower ones of these seven down here. Binah and Chokhmah are the Sabin, they're the elders. Kether, which is the one you can see is linked to the Ein Sof, is, um, is called Sabad Sabin. It's the highest level of, of, of um, the Sefirotic tree, okay? So Sabad Sabin appears, where are we? Yeah, here we go. Sabad Sabin speaks. And Sabad Sabin, by the way, has two configurations, two parts of him, which we'll see in a second. And it said, Shimon, Shimon, man who the Amar Ayomer Elohim Adam says, Who is this who said Adam? Who is that? Right? Um, who is this Elohim who said Adam? Okay. And while Shimon was distracted by hearing this voice calling to him, Sabad Sabin ran away. You know, he, uh, he flew off. He disappeared, and Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai did not see him. And from the fact that Shimon ben Yochai was addressed as Shimon and not Rabbi Shimon, without the honorific, clearly indicated to him, What spoke to me just now was the Atik Yomin. Okay, so of the two parts of Finn, the two uh, um, configurations of Keter, of Sabad Sabin, the highest Sefirah, 
You have the Atik Yomin, the old ancient days, and you have the Arich Anpin, the long face. Okay? And the Atik Yomin is the masculine, it's the it's affiliated with the masculine trait, and the Arich um, Anpin is affiliated with the feminine trait. Okay? And so that goes, that becomes developed as follows the Atik Yomin represents God's immovable essence. And the why that isn't the Ein Sof, I don't know. If someone does, please tell me. But that's God's immovable essence. But the Arich Anpin is God's outward manifested will. And Rabbi Shimon is saying, I'm so certain from the fact that I was called Shimon and not Rabbi Shimon, that what spoke to me was not the Arich Anpin, the outward manifestation. It was actually God's essence spoke to me. So not only did Rabbi Shimon hear a Batkol, which we know, not only did he not, you know, he didn't encounter Malach, he didn't encounter prophecy. He encountered the highest level of God's hidden, you know, immovable essence. That is a pretty bold statement to make. Um, yeah, okay, the rest of us are, okay, the rest of this passage we need to go find. He's just saying that now we can reveal these Kabbalistic secrets because he was told so by the Arctic Yomin. But what this is saying is that he actually had a huge, um, you know, a huge revelation. So Mori Kafech raises this point and says, the Zohar is contradicting something that we know is authoritative. You are, by doing this, you are calling the, the Talmud a, a liar. You're calling it wrong, just blatantly incorrect. And he goes on there a few other places, the Zohar explicitly says things like, this is a brilliant, it says, um, Moshe was only punished, what was Moshe's sin? So I would say to you, well, he hit the rock. Okay, that's a nice, very easy answer. The Zohar would say, no, his sin was he gave the Jewish people the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the maidservant of the of uh, of the Gemara of the or whatever, and it's the, considered the, the Shifcha. And because it, Moshe gave the people the Mishnah, he was he was punished by being buried outside of the land of Israel. Okay, that was his sin. So it's quite disparaging about some of the other works, you know, about you know the the ideas going on about the other works. The ideas in the Zohar are kind of read into the other works. There's a line in the Zohar as well that says, um, I think it's the Zohar where it says. Um, if the sole purpose of the uh, Torah was to teach us the Torah without the Kabbalistic content, then not only is it unnecessary, but we could have written a better one, Shimon Ben Yochai says in the Zohar. We could have written a better Torah than, than the one that's given. The, the Torah here is not for, you know, what it says on the tin. It's not the outward Peshat meaning or anything like that. It's only for the, you know, esoteric Kabbalistic meaning. And that's what it has to be for. So it's very disparaging. And this ties into this point where he's saying, well, look, according to the Talmud, Rabbi Shimon Men Yochai laments the fact that he never has revelation. And here you're telling me he was revealed to by the Atik Yomin. That's completely against the Talmud. Completely against the Talmud. Okay. While we're here, um, let's talk about Ben Tamalion because it's just fun. Uh, so what is this Ben Tamalion? So there's a story I'm going to bring you from uh, Vayikra Rabbah, which is the source of this Midrash. It's very nice. So, There was a story where a person, one person, certain person donated with, uh, sorry, donated, uh, deposited with Bar Tamalion, the son of Tamalion. So he's clearly a person. Mea dinarin, a hundred dinar. Azal And so he went, and then after he wanted to say, he wanted to claim it back. The person said, I deposited them with you. Can I have them back? Amar made ifkad masrit yeah i have given it over to you already i've given it to you swear to me there's no way you did that take a shibua mavid 
Bartimaleon. What did he do, Bartimaleon? So Natal had kane chakakei. He took a reed. He hollowed it out. Yahav be halem dinarin. He put in uh, the the dinarin that he'd been deposited. Sharei mismach ale, and he began to walk, leaning on the stick. Amarle sor haden kania biadach ana mishtaba lach, and he said uh, to the guy after he started walking on the stick, he says, "Look, hold my stick, and I'll take the shevua." Given the mate leve kanishta when he got to the the kanis. The ma- like he invokes God's name, the master of this good house, right? What you've given to me, I have given over. I've given over to your hands. Um, which is true because he'd handed him the stick. So he gets out of this Shavu'ah. So he suspects something is amiss in, in the Talmud. We'll mention it's in the Talmud as well. Um, he it's, it's out of anger, but he throws the stick on the ground. And seemingly the stick breaks and the, the coins start to scatter across. And he begins to um, collect them. So he says to him, Collect them, collect them. It's your things that you're taking. So Ben Tamalion is a kind of trickster, uh, you know, a, a person who is kind of a thief, definitely. But he kind of, at the end of this, his response is like, go on, collect them. It's very sneery. Like he's a bit, you know, um, a bit unpleasant, a trickster. Okay. If, if this sounds familiar to anyone, does anyone knows where else it comes up? There are two answers to this question, where else this comes up. Two very different answers. One is in Talmud, in Nidarim, Kafhe. And the other is with Sancho Panza in Don Quixote, right? This is a story that takes place uh, in front of Sancho Panza. So uh, this is this is the source for that story. I'm pretty sure it's the source for this story. So in turn, okay, but Ben Tamalion, however, is just too good. You know, those kinds of names where you look at them and you're like, yeah, that's definitely a demon. Or some people look at them and say, it's definitely a demon. So despite the fact that in the midrash of Hazar, like in the in, it's clearly a person like it's a person he went and donated like gave him money and he came to court and walked and walked he's like it's a person rashi says ben tamalion nutium i don't know it's a demon that you call nutium tosafot say is what he is what it's written there are suggestions that what he meant was it's it's a corruption in the text was lamad tet tet yudnun lutin lutin which is a french like kind of little elf Says here that he, uh, it's a little elf that kind of runs around uh, wreaking havoc with women. With women, um, but yes. Yeah, so Ben Tamalion, it's just a like, it's just an interesting uh, tangent to go on there for uh, just for five minutes or so of who this Ben Tamalion was in the Talmud in the Darim. It doesn't give a name. It's just a story with with Rava, I think. Um, so it just it doesn't say Ben Tamalion. Here's Ben Tamalion. Here brings the name. Okay, so that's an interesting find. So the first thing, as we said, so we looked at. So um, the first of the three. So number one, yeah, that was, yeah, was the Zohar written by Rashbi? And the, 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 this, the, you know, the contradiction between the Talmud and the opening of the Zohar. This is right at the beginning of the Zohar, by the way. It's um, um, right at the start. I mean, you can see they're discussing, you know, let us make man. So that's right at the beginning. Okay, let's move on to the next section. Here's a new question. So is all of the Zohar valid? Um, by the way, I'll just say I'm not looking at all of this because Tina told me that I can't go through all the content of the letters because we need to leave some incentive for people to buy the book. So uh, I'll go through some of the you know, kind of more interesting arguments. Uh, no, all of them are interesting. Going through some of the arguments that I thought would, would fit well into a presentation. So here's a question. Is all of the Zahar valid? And this is interesting because people have discussed these kinds of things, right? 
Um, and what they've discussed is, um, yeah, what they've discussed is, you know, you've got things like, um, you know, even the Vilna Gaon said, you know, the when we say the Ari was taught the Kabbalah by Eliyahu Anavi, it's not all of it, it was some of it, right? Not, you know, some of it. There's also supposedly um, even Rav Desla and, um, you know, someone else, you know, admitted that uh, they said that, you know, if you took the content that was originally Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai and put it in the Zohar, it would make like three pages or something. So, um, you know, that there's, it's not that this is not like the craziest idea ever. And Rav Cook is also going to admit this and he's going to say it on both, um, on two counts, on two fronts. Okay. The first front is Kabbalah in general. And the next is the Zohar. So let's look at this point with Kabbalah. So Rav Cook begins, so God does not bring about bad things. This is a statement in Talmud as well. Bad, you know, mis, you know, mishaps through the righteous. God forbid. The kind of innocence of the upright will lead them. Kind of, you know, they, they get led and they end up in the right place. But all of this is with general generalities. But with regards to specific details, well, I'm going to quote you from the Kuzari. I agree, Kazar King, that there are th- with these three things, I can't give you a good reason for them. And I can't relate them to anything. And look over there, you know, what, what he talks about. But he still writes about this. But the, the composition itself is not going to be detracted from only discussing the points that I've made. So, yeah, there are three things I can't answer you for. That doesn't detract from the validity of the other things I've said to you. Each thing should be considered on its own merits. And nor were all compositions, works that spoke about Kabbalah equal in their, you know, conception, the way they grasped things or in the way they expressed things. And there are things that are completely not accepted. Like the Sefer, which, you know, you brought. Uh, which if it's from Nachman, I don't know why it's from Nachman, uh, instead of in we know that this is an invalid book, from the false Messiah, Shabbatai Tzavi. Maybe you have a different sefer called Oz Elohim, not from him, but again, I'm not responsible for that, Rav Kook is saying, I, I can't help you with that's not my, what do you want me to do, right? I can't see every book and I can't speak for every book, right? There are people who should not be writing about Kabbalah because they don't understand it yet. They should follow Torah, the simple Torah. And that's a brilliant thing for them to do. Don't get with these, you know, these, these, don't, disregard the entirety of Kabbalah because you came across a couple of problematic works. So except that not all of the works of Kabbalah are really acceptable or valid. You know, here Rav Cook is willing to concede that over here. He says, don't throw the baby out with bathwater, right? There are things that, I don't know what the one back there, there, there are things that are valuable even so, 
I mean, and that's with Kabbalah in general. And now he's going to say it about the Zohar as well. It's somewhere else. Oh, no, one second. Did I not bring it here? Oh, no, hang on. No, here it is. Uh, hmm? Yeah, apparently I didn't bring it in. That's a shame. I don't know why I didn't bring that in here. There's a line where he says about the Zohar as well. He says, um, like Rabbi Yaakov Emden said, um, you know, the Yivitz is well known, um, said, you know, there are parts of the Zohar as well, which were added and got stuck, you know, stuck in there mistakenly. Right. And may not represent true doctrine. You know, that's a problem. Uh, and I um, I accept this part of the Zohar as well. So he says Kabbalah and the Zohar also are not completely foolproof, you know. Not everything in them is 100% valid. And Rav Cook accepts that, okay? But he says, as I said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot more to still be gained, okay? So, um, there we go, yeah. So let's take a look at the response from Rav Kafek to this point. So his approach is basically um, to bombard him with, like, source after source of fairly accepted Kabbalistic works that, in his opinion, are just completely beyond the pale. So... Here's one of them. So, I already indicated to, you know, his eminence saying, uh, He says, I already indicated to you in, in, you know, in the pamphlet he wrote before, in the Hamas Hashem, various other, in, um, various other things, um, where the Zohar ascribes the, the service, the Avodah, the temple service and prayer as well, uh, to the Elil, the idol of the Ze'er Anpin, the little face, right? Ketzer Anpin is called Apayim, little face. He's quoting this from in the name of the, um, you know, accepted Mukobalim, he's saying the Sefer Haberit, the Yosher Lebab which is a respected Kabbalistic work, where the Avodah has to be given not to God, but to a created well, a demiurge. That's the fancy word they give, right? In, in Gnosticism, this is the demiurge. So, you know, a created, you know, God that stands in to do the work in this world because God is, you know, above this world and can't do it. So, you know, there's, so he's quoted the Sefer Rabbit in the Yosheh Lebab. So the Ari wrote that as well. God is the Ze'er and it's Nukba, which is the feminine aspect configuration, right? Whenever you say the tetragrammaton, you should intend to have in mind that you are saying the name of the Ze'er Anpin. Again, a created God. They give you know keter yudnu lacha is not lacha to God, it's lacha to the Ze'er Anpin. Shehu Hashem Elokeinu, which is the Lord your God. So it says in this book, Masarif Emunah, Vagam Mikdash Melech, which is commentary on the Zohar. Elaha Rab Rava, it says in the Zohar, you know, the, the mighty God, Elaha Rab Rava, Katav, who's Ze'er Anpin? That's the Ze'er Anpin. And this is the crazy part. Baham Chaven Le'em Sof. If you pray uh, and direct your uh, tefillah to the Ein Sof to the ineffable, un, you know, non-understandable God. 
ain't vilathor tefillah. Your tefillah is not valid. You cannot pray to God as God. You may only pray to the created representative of God, the intermediary, the, the created demiurge, whatever you want to call it, which is shocking, right? In, in fact, I mean, Dash Mala, he doesn't bring it here. He goes on and he says, it's, it's just so interesting because it's so, at one moment, it's similar and different. Let me, let me explain what I mean. The Mikdash Melech continues. He says, if you pray to the Ein Sof Melubash, like clothed within the Sephirot aspects, basically, then that's okay. So in other words, you must relate to God through these created aspects. It's just so much like, yeah, we know, you, you know, if you take the Maimonidian approach, you can't understand God, but you're permitted to relate to him. But it's just so far off that track when you're dealing with these created emanate what emanations if you're lurianic or aspects if you're if you're zoharic they're just so far off uh it's representative of the primeval human who stands at the level of atzilut uh, we won't go into that now fine uh, yeah but uh, yeah uh, here we go one second yeah everyone needs to worship the Man of Atsilut, the primordial man of Atsilut. If you re- re- withhold your um, kind of homage that you should be paying to this Zer um, Anpin, then your sins will be spelled out in front of the Imakadisha. Okay? Imakadisha, uh, whatever you want to, however you want to understand that. There's, you know, what he's doing here is showing you there are many, many works that, in his opinion, are probably you know say problematic statements to, and and are considered mainstream kabbalistic ideas musmachim they are they are accepted right they are muskam um, bafiyam you know whether that's rabhaim vital the ari the sarif emunah mikdash melech sefer abarit the zohar itself um, yeah nachalat yosef so that's his point here is that yeah okay don't throw the baby out of the bathwater there's no content that's worthwhile within this he's saying there isn't a baby is basically what he's saying if, if within that analogy okay um 22 minutes past nine okay let's go on to the third and final so i did that well and the third and final um point that's made now this is a huge discussion are the sephirot literal okay Arif cook is going to take the perspective position that they're not okay the sephirot are not literal depictions of gods they are metaphor okay And we're going to look at how Rakuk presents that now. But this is a discussion that's wide ranging within Kabbalah. So someone says, well, I thought they were. Re- yeah, like there are definitely people who think that they are um, directly representative. But let's, you know, let that's the Rakuk is going to say they're not. But let's see what his point is with that and what Mori Kafef responds. So. Rav Kook says, If we come to address the expressions as they appear to us, you know, ostensibly at first glance, you know, the, what you've said, you know, about these, these, you know, parts of fame and without looking into them deeply. Well, you're going to fall foul of the same problems that the people who have issues with, with anthropomorphisms do. Which the Tanakh and Hazal, the Chachamim used as well, these, uh, these corporealizations, these Hagshamot. And in according to Harambam, it's a little bit disingenuous quoting Harambam here, as we'll see in a minute. We'll see why. Okay. 
even if you say that there's one god one one master but it's he you know he, he has a body and he is subject to his image right it's still complete minut okay Allah shahara ra'avad did not sell al hatoim halalu ra'avad apologized kind of you know says you know you gotta you gotta Take, bear in mind the people who mistakenly thought God did have body. Why? Because the Pesukim themselves misled them. And even more so, they saw in the Agadah Hachamim, which, you know, completely messes up a person's the person's mind if they're going to look at talk about God being physical. So we have to ask. Why would the Hachamim and the Torah speak in ways that are going to confuse people? They're going to imply that God has physicality. If there is a need to explain to um, whether that's the, you know, the hoi uh, poloi of, of the... Of the um, Jewish people, whether that's, you know, the uh, the people who can understand or the simple people, doesn't matter. Once you're estab- describing certain fundamental aspects, you use whatever terminology you think is best to convey those ideas. And um, they relied on, they assumed that the Hachamim would later come and explain them the way they need to be explained. Claims. They would be drawn towards fear of heaven and good Musar. And both the learned and unlearned people would receive benefit. From the first part, he wrote, someone who believes, we know it's not Yamin, right? We know Yamin, Itikad, all that, not going to that now. It's worse than idolatry, where you think there are multiple things with bodies. If you think there's one thing that's composite, that's really problematic. But nonetheless, the Torah and the Nevi'im and the Hachamim were very happy to basically willy-nilly go around using these anthropomorphisms. And, you know, there was no concern that in, in terms of explaining these deep, pure ideas. Which is really impossible. It's ineffable. It can't be described in any sense anyway. Even if it does so in, multi, in, in ways that seem to be talking about multiplicity. Um, for the interest of time, I'm going to skip the rest of it. He basically accepts that, and he quotes the Havot Halavavot, where he says that the only people who can really serve God are the philosophers or the Nevi'im, who are able to really have a conception of what it means that God doesn't have any of these qualities we think God has. But he says, you know, Hesed Hashem al which is a phrase Rav Kook uses elsewhere. This is this, you know, kindness of God is upon all his creations in the sense that he gave us metaphor to be able to relate to him. It's a very clever argument. Um, because we do believe that. And fundamentally, I think that's that's basic Jewish doctrine. God is un- non-understandable whatsoever, right? And um, God gave us a way of relating to him that is metaphorical. 
you know, that that's that's not so crazy, you know, that we relate to God. God relates to us in ways we can understand. Harambam says similar things ostensibly that, you know, God relates to us in certain ways. In the Pasuk, just as a, a parent chastises a child, so too the Lord your God will chastise you. God uses metaphors to explain how he relates to us. Very, it's very good, very, very, you know, doesn't need my haskama, but it's a very, you know, logical argument to make. And just over here, he says as well, that he quotes in its Chaim as well, and a quote of the Panim Me'irot Masbirot, who wrote, the Sefirot Ab Erkenu, they are with our valuation. They were all said with, from our perspective. All these ideas of connecting to God are according to the conception of the created beings. Right? It's very much Rav Moshe Kodavero, where it comes up with you, speaks, speaks about this a lot as well, right? That, um, you know, you've got God is like white light and we're looking through filters. So the way we perceive God relating to us is is not the same way that God is, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that they believed that there was a multiplicity in the divine. It just means that we relate to God that way. But often, that this is such a great thing of God that, you know, in order to explain the furthest reaches of his greatness, um, he, uh, you know, he gave us these methods, these sefirot, as a way of relating to him, right? Um and that's what all these are. They're all parables. Okay. So just to recap, the, the key theological points we're going to take away from this are, according to Rav Kook, the Sefirot do not describe God's essence, meaning they are not Misidot. Instead, they decide they is described from our perspective, seeing the revealed aspect of God, Misidenu. The seeming attack on God's unity or indication of multiplicity is only when taking the statements of the Zohar at face value. Instead, they need to be understood as conveying deep ideas. Number one, deep ideas require deep, possibly misleading language. And number two, this, these are the two points he's working off. These deep ideas are in line with accepted Jewish theology. Now, it is literally half past nine, but um, which means I probably won't go this whole, through this whole passage of Moren of Uchim that I put in, uh, despite the fact that it's really crucial to understanding this. Okay, we're going to understand why this is not within Harambam. This doesn't work. And I'm going to sum it up for you, but this is it on the page. You want to read through it. If you, if you want to read through it and ignore what I'm speaking about, you can do that. So I'm just going to sum this up, not as well as Harambam wrote it. If you don't want to read through it, but you can listen to me summing it up. Basically, when we talk about God's having movements, that's because human beings cannot conceive of any existence that doesn't involve movement, even though movement is not an essential fa- part. It's not the essence of being right? It's a consequence of being. So for example, you know, he talks about the king. How do you know there's a king? Well, there's law and order. There's only law and order if there's a king. So I can see there's a king, but I don't know anything about his essence. So, so too, you know, we're going to say God moves, God stretched out, God moved from one place to another. It doesn't mean that he moved. It's, it's to show that God exists because human beings cannot deal with the idea that an existent thing could exist without movement. Okay, and so too strength and things like this. This last line here. They were loaned to him. So basically like loan words when we say these things. The the physical vessels required to indicate that God takes action were lent to God. And so too, with regards to actions, what isn't the essence of the action, but a way of performing the action was also used as a borrowed term to talk about gods. Okay. 
And this part of the Moran Nebuchim, very important as well. It's, it, this is all from the same chapter, chapter 46 in the first Chalek. It's, um, yeah, well, uh, yes. He's saying here that, um, so why were certain things chosen and not others? Well, speech and sight are needed because, well, if you say, I see, that means I understand in English as well. You can say, ah, I see. It doesn't mean literal sight. So we already know that literal sight doesn't mean that, but it also is essential to, to, to have an understanding that God understands whatever that means. You need to use the word sight. Why don't we ever say that God tastes? Why don't we say that God tasted the lechem, right? We say that God smelled, uh, you know, um, why don't yeah we don't we say that God's um you, you know God wants a reach nichalach why don't we say that God tasted the korbanot because that is completely unnecessary and would do only damage to say that God tastes right because you know, Arambam says that you only the only things we were given were things that involve um that you know that are essential and involve being a step back so I can see something or hear something from afar. If I taste something, it means the physical thing is in my mouth. So God can see and hear. And already you've got a sense that God is distant. Right. And it also means that God understands. And that's essential. There is no purpose you would ever need to say that God can taste something. And it also conveys this idea that God is like right there with a physical thing, like completely unhelpful to say things like this. Right. Completely unhelpful. So we don't say things like that. We don't say God has a shoulder. Right, the only thing you use a shoulder for is for carrying, right? Because why touch involves physical contact, as we said, sight can be from afar, sound can be from afar, right? Carrying is physical contact and unnecessary. God doesn't have a digestive system, like. We have a digestive system because we're physical and useless. And if we go without food, we, we break. So God doesn't need that. What are we going to gain by describing God in such terms? So in other words, what's essential to understand from this point is that metaphor is not just a free-for-all. You can't just say, oh, it's metaphorical and we're describing deep ideas. Metaphor was used, correct, as a way of relating to God's but with very particular choice examples, with very particular reasoning and only reasoning that you would not conclude absolute terrible problematic ideas from okay so um yeah so let's so we'll see as we'll, we'll sum up with this i know i'm over time sorry sum up with this with mori kafe says over here i'm not so he says i'm not talking about the the expressions i'm talking about the underlying problems with the expressions but even the expressions, It's using the words that are most basic to the uneducated sectors of society, shall we say, or as he says, uh, women, children and the uneducated people. And therefore, we had to anthropomorphize God. To give him created qualities. To give them understanding in ways that are close to their their understanding and their, their, their wisdom. 
אילו היה מספרים אותם בעניין הראוי לו מן המילות הרוחניות, לא היינו מבינים, if we try to use actual words, no one would understand. לא העניין ולא המילות, not the matter and not the words. Think in terms of, you know, where הרמב״ם says, if you told people to serve God without prayer, only with fasting, the people can't handle it. So to here, like, and you know, so they had, they couldn't handle it without Korbanot. You can't explain existence in purely just like, Apophatic knowledge, which we're going to come to in a second, because so uh, I'll skip over the rest of that there. According to Mari Kafech and Harambam, metaphor is not ideal. Metaphor is used to establish a basic level of understanding of God's existence. Understand that God has a hand, then remove the physical understanding of the idea and understand that really God has no hand. You need to discard your childish primary school education that you got told that, uh, you know, God stretched out his hand and he took out the people. He picked them up and OK, right. Disagrees with both of Rob Cook's points. Deep language cannot adequately communicate mystical ideas. This is apophatic knowledge, which I'm definitely not going to talk about now because we definitely have no time for it. But again, the point is not to convey deep mystical ideas through speech because that can't be done. Speech is the basic level of understanding. Anything above that, you've gone wacky. You've gone off the, way, off the rails, right? That's too, it's, it's, it's the wrong way, right? The ideas put forward, even by way of metaphor, are problematic ideas. So he's saying, even if you want to tell me these metaphors, they're not good ideas. And, and, and we're not going to go through this now, but this is the Zohar over here where it basically says, like, Shema Yisrael is really the unification of five separate parts of God, um, which obviously you can understand would make Mori Kafech very upset. Um, so that's the part of it that we're not going to look at now. But basically, yeah, the, pro- the ways metaphor are problematic ideas. And, and just to say now as well, you'll never, obviously, so... so this goes without saying, and Haram Bum did not need to spell this out, but I'll spell this out anyway, because apparently it doesn't go without saying. Um, God does not have any digestive system. He also doesn't have a reproductive system. The Zohar's idea that creation comes about because God is in mystic sexual union with himself is completely a metaphor that is way, for Mori Kafech, is way off the rails. It's like, the metaphor is the basic understanding. There is no basic understanding of God that you're gaining from talking about God's, you know, Nukba and his, uh, you know, Ze'er and the union that they create and the, you know, whatever, the, the cosmic syzygy. Like, that is completely not helpful in understanding real mystical ideas. It's only distracting. Those things are, are required, hamin, as Harambam says, they are required to, 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 to propagate the species. They are not required for gods. So these are three things that we just looked at in terms of these letters. Did Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai write the Zohar, the, the, the contradiction from Talmud? Is all of Kabbalah or the Zohar authentic, an admission from Rav Kook, and, but an attack nonetheless from Mori Kafech? And are the Sefirot literal and does that make anything better? So with that in mind, let's just stop the share and I'll just conclude having looked at those. The, the questions we kind of need to ask ourselves regarding these ideas are... Um, as follows basically um what is the zohar problematic is there enough of a you know what what mysticism uh kind of is there that that we can attach ourselves to and you know without the zohar how easy will it be for us to extricate zoharic uh, kind of ideas from mystical ideas and these really there's there's questions that someone there was um got the name of the person translated it now who translated the letters between shadal and ben mozeg um, who writes these questions like that we need to consider how much of orthodox Judaism is intimately tied up with Kabbalah. And you go to people and you say, you know, don't do Daniel Klein. Thank you, Sina. So Daniel Klein, he asked like how much, what, what would happen if you, if you talk to people, I was on a WhatsApp group. This is anecdotal and went, I was on a WhatsApp group um, that will remain nameless where someone said, what is the source for praying for people's refuah? So I responded with the Halachayin Harambam in Hilchot Avodah that you can't do that. And I got a private message from someone saying, 
you can't post things like that. You're going to destroy the Jewish world. Okay. And I said, I think if the Jewish world stands or falls on me quoting a halakha from Harambam, the Jewish world is in serious dire straits. So these are questions we need to ask ourselves. What is the role of the Zohar? Are there things that are positive that we can take from it? How much is it Hashem? How much does it uh, attack the idea of the unity of the divine? And um, uh, what can we take from it? How much of Orthodox Judaism is tied up with it? But these are definitely to see these two great individuals speaking to each other with great respect, discussing these ideas. It's certainly a wonderful thing. I encourage everyone to buy the book. Uh, and with that, I'll conclude, hand over back to Ohad's. Wow. Thank you so much, Ben. That was super insightful. Very well presented. Uh, we'll go for questions right now, comments. If anyone has any of that, they can raise their hand, unmute, right in the right in the chat box. And uh, I'm sure Ben will do a great job at taking them. I'll start, start off by asking, what was sort of the conclusion of the letters? Like, was it, meaning how did it end off? And was it publicized then? Meaning, did were the, was the community aware of the of the conversation, or was it just sort of a private interaction? Um, so you want me to spoil the ending? So Haraf Cook ends his letter by saying, "Like I will be done lechafsechut. I will judge you favorably and assume that you were do you know you were doing this for the sake of God, but you need to retract your statement." And um, Mori Kafech ends with. Uh, eight or nine uh, points. He's like, firstly, secondly, thirdly, goes all the way through to nine and basically says, um, these are my issues and I'm not retracting anything and you need to retract because you are um, um, they don't really, they discuss, like he addresses the ideas that Rav Kook brings, like he does, but there's no, there isn't a follow-up after that. It just kind of, I assume it peters out. I mean, he died three months later. So to be honest, maybe Rav Kook would have written a response, but then he heard that he died. Like I'm saying, by the time the letter got there and then he read it and then had time to respond. You know, yeah, yeah. So, but um, and in terms of um, do people know? I have no idea. Um, sorry. Right. I had a question, Ben. Uh, first of all, it was fantastic. So thank you so much. From the letters of uh, Morikafir, does it sound like it's somebody who is very well versed in the Zohar and somebody who spent time actually studying it? Did he know what he was talking about? If you like, when it comes to the Zohar, even though he was so against it. Yeah, you definitely get that sense. I mean, you get that more from Milchamot Hashem. If you read Milchamot Hashem, you really see, um, I mean, Milchamot Hashem is like a constructive conversation, right? Where he's like talking between between two people. Like, um, But you definitely get a sense, like there's there's deep, deep discussions of, of, of Zoharic literature. Like he definitely knew it. Like he was familiar with it. It was all around him when he was growing, you know, in, in Yemen as well. Um, but um, he's, like, he's quoting all the commentaries on it, all the Kabbalistic works that they had around, you know, without without any kind of um without any kind of uh hesitation or, or or lack of knowledge um to do so um he's very yeah he de- he understands the, the concepts as well and what they refer to like he 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 also assumes that you might not if you're reading the letter so for example where he talks about the five parts of god that you unify when reciting the shema um he writes like in brackets, he puts in like, by the way, this is referring to this and this is referring to this aspect. And this is, this is like a code word for the Zohar when it means this. So he definitely is un- understands Kabbalistic um, doctrine. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think uh, my second cousin has asked a question. Um, does Rob Cook respond to the source in Marilara? We're not receiving prophecy. No, he doesn't respond. There's no response that I'm aware of. I haven't, I, I um, haven't seen people addressing this source in Marilara. I'm sure that people do, 
uh, all, all those typical things like, you know, he did receive prophecy, but it was covered, it was hidden and he couldn't receive it or he received the prophecy later or anything like that. You know, there's various ways you could kind of wrangle your way out of it. But um, you know, the, the level of prophecy, I'll, I'll say something about the prophecy. Um, I mean, by the way, as I said, like, I mean, Mori Kafech died like three months later after he wrote his letter. So could have been that he would have responded. Um, we just don't know. Um, but something about the prophecy, I mean, you're not talking about um, like vague prophecy, you know, a star shall go forth of Jacob, you know, from Jacob and things like that. Or, um, you know, uh, that's, you know, that's a great one. But, uh, you know, these vague prophecies, you know, the the, the prophets are, are, you know, are not, not Nostradamus even. Like for, if Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai is, is writing these things and he's making these predictions with a level of prophecy, there's completely unprecedented, like the, the things that it talks about, the rise of Islam the rise of, um, you know, the Crusades, the use of Nekudot, the use of the um, vowels, right, the signs. You, you're talking about a level of prophecy, like heretofore unseen in any kind of Jewish context whatsoever. Like really, so it's, it's like a level of prophecy that is just, um, it's just shocking. Like, it, it, you know, to, to then say that Rabbi Shimon was not even visited by a Malach, but he had deep insights into the future is, is mad. It's like, a, it's, it's a crazy idea. It stands in direct contradiction. There's no way to get around that. Any other questions? I know you brought this at the end as sort of like the further questions um, of sort of what mysticism, well, not Zoharic, do, can, can we have, can we build uh, when we are essentially, what system do we have in serving God? Um, does uh, Rav Kafech have, have a system that he, that he subscribes to, that he, that he promotes? I don't know. I would assume it's, the, it's how, however he understood the Moreh would be his mysticism uh i i would guess that that's the case um uh yeah i mean if you want you know go and read homo mysticus right like it's it's you know that that's a great it's a great thing to read um you know say there's a message that very lover of cook's approach in many ways and his beautiful voice itself also do struggle with um what seems like capitalist basis and it's not possible to read about the world to reading the book uh okay very nice yeah I mean, if uh, Rabbi Tzvi did a class on Rav Cook, you know, and spoke about, you know, his idea, especially because the the thing is, when you take panentheistic notions, you know, drops the sparks of God in everything and returning that to God, you um, it's it's it, it it crosses over to an extent with the idea that everything you do can be to serve God. You've just got this theocentric versus anthropocentric thing going on. Like, am I the center of the universe, and my cosmic actions have like huge repercussions, or is God the center of the universe, and I improve myself? But practically speaking, you're doing everything for the sake of God, which is why um, there's a book, Torah Umadah, by um, Norman Lamb, and he characterizes different models of, of quote-unquote modern orthodoxy, whatever you want to use with that term, and he puts Harambam and he puts Rav Cook, and I think that his description of Rav Cook is much more similar to what Harambam really holds than um, his description of Harambam. Like, I think his description of Harambam is very much like the typical metaphysics, science. Like, I think that that underplays a lot of what Harambam is about. And I think it's much more similar to Rav Cook. So if, you, if you're interested, go at like the, the class from the Habarites from the first year. So it's on, on YouTube uh, of him going through a piece by Rav, uh, Rav Cook in Orot. Um, but yeah. I know this is you. You were just bringing, sharing the Rambam in, in the Moreh. Um but he was making a distinction between sort of different types of, of metaphor. So you have, you know, and like you would say that, listen, it's too far to say like he tasted. Uh, but we do have like, for example, we say he doesn't have a shoulder. But we, we say he has a hand, like he literally, you know, the Torah says that and he literally carried things out and I took you out. 
like, oh, I didn't carry you on a shoulder, but I did take you out in the hand. It's also hard to hear how like a, a simple a simple Jew reading the text is going to be like, oh, you see, he didn't say taste. So you see, that shows me that there's this massive distinction between like, that's not happening when people read them. So I think there's a couple of points to bear in mind here. The first is that they're not necessarily conscious. There's a subconscious element. If I think about God seeing, there's already distance in my mind. If I think about God tasting, there isn't. Um, with regards to the shoulder point, Harambam points out it's only for bearing. A hand can do kind of other, the hand, the problem with the hand, with, with the Harambam writes, is that to do an act, to, to do anything, you need to have a hand in human terms, to lift, to move anything. You need hands and legs. And that's the whole point of Harambam is to show you that hands and legs can mean other things and not literal things. And so, and, and, and furthermore, just, you know, Mori Kafech points this out in the letters as well. He says, whenever the Torah tells you God has a hand, God has eyes, it's immediately followed by, be very careful to remember, you never saw a picture. Utma, uh, wait, um, I'm trying to think a bit what the Pasuk is now. It's in, uh, there's one coming up in Bait Hanan. It says, Utmuna um, ro'im, or something like that, right? You didn't see any image. Like God took you out with the hands, but you saw no image on Sinai. Like there was no, there was no picture, right? So, so there's those three things to bear in mind. I think one is it's, it's a bit, it's kind of subconscious, like what, what metaphors we're using. Two is that the Torah warns you not to do it, you know, will not do it. And three is that there are, you know, shoulder is only for carrying hands do other things as well there's there's a balance between necessity and function like the functionality of it yeah okay so i think we'll close it with that thank you so much ben that was really incredible very well presented and uh, thank you so much everyone for coming uh, stay tuned we're going to have uh, the third installment of our students uh, presenting and uh, with that uh, Lila Tov, everyone. Thank you so much. Good night, everyone. Thank you.